0: Goddag og velkommen til langsomme samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talte med den verdensberømte amerikanske klimaforsker Michael E. Mann. Michael E. Mann ville egentlig bare være en stille og rolig naturvidenskabelig fyr, som var kandidat i både matematik og fysik, da han afsluttede sin studie på UCLA i midten af 1980'erne. Men så skete det, at han fandt ud af at der var et andet institut på UCLA. Et institut, hvor man undersøgte, hvad de forskellige forandringer i vores udledninger gjorde ved vores klima. Og Michael Lee Mann var ikke politisk aktivist, og han havde ikke lyst til at blive det. Men han var en ung videnskabsmand, og han blev enormt optaget af sammenhængen mellem vores udledninger og temperaturerne i verden omkring os. Og fordi han blev videnskabeligt optaget af det, så lavede han sammen med nogle kolleger en graf, der er blevet kendt som the hockeystick graph. grafen. Og hockeystavsgrafen, den viser, hvordan de menneskelige udledninger over og hundreder kommer til at påvirke temperaturerne i verden omkring os. Og den viser, at det kan ligge meget, meget lavt i styk tid, og pludselig så accelererer det opad. Og fordi den her stille og rolige videnskabsmand, der er født i Amherst, Massachusetts og er dobbeltkandidat i matematik og fysik, han stod bag den her rapport, så kom han pludselig ind i kernen af den amerikanske kulturkrig og klimakamp. Han blev forhat fra højre, og der blev kastet smedekampagner mod ham for alle, der ikke brydde sig om hele snakken om klimaforandringer, og som ikke syntes, global opvarmning var et stort problem, men derimod noget, Venstrefløjen havde fundet på. Så han blev modvilligt en politisk aktivist. Men som han fortæller i den her samtale, så er det en rolle, han efterhånden har taget på sig og omfavnet. For som han siger, så er det et privilegium at kunne være midt i verdens største drama, og være med til at påvirke beslutningstagere Og ændre vores allesammen toldninger med viden og indsigt. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark and especially I guess it's not good evening but it's hello to you Michael Lee Man who's with us from Pennsylvania.
1: Uh, thank you it's good to be with you.
0: Michael Lee Man har netop udgivet en ny bog der hedder The New Climate War. Og den handler om hvordan modstanderne for den grønne omstilling ikke længere er dem der siger at klimaforandringerne ikke finder sted. Det kan tværtimod være dem ligesom dig og måske mig der siger, at klimaforandringerne er så voldsomme, så katastrofen allerede har fundet sted. Den går simpelthen ikke, siger Michael E. Mann. Han siger, at det er klima, dommedags, porno. Stop det. Ja, der er noget, der har forandret sig og vil forandre sig, men vi kan stadigvæk nå at undgå de værste katastrofer. Så på den måde tager Michael E. Mann i sin nye bog og i den her langsomme samtale fat i nogle helt andre modstandere af klimakamp, vi er vant til. Jeg er i hvert fald ikke vant til at stå på den forkerte side af historien, men det gør jeg her. Og så måske ender det alligevel med at komme over på den rigtige side. Lyt med. I'm quite curious. You're educated as a mathematician and a physicist, and I guess when you started studying, that you didn't subscribe to become almost, I wouldn't say a political activist, but definitely engaged in some in climate wars and very, very intense political fighting. You've been exposed to smear campaigns. How did you go from being mathematician and physicist to where you are now?
1: Yeah, thanks. It's it's not the uh, you know the career I thought I had signed up for when I uh, double majored as an undergraduate at UC Berkeley in applied math and, and physics, and I went on to Yale University uh, thinking I would be studying theoretical physics, and instead uh, I found that uh, the problems that I was being given to work on weren't they just weren't that exciting to me. It wasn't quite what I had envisioned, and so I started looking elsewhere. Uh, around the university to see if there were other departments where there were researchers working on interesting problems that require math and physics. And I saw that there was a professor in the Department of Geology and Geophysics who was, in fact, using math and physics to model Earth's climate system. And that sounded like a fascinating problem to me. So I went and talked with him. uh, And uh, soon I decided to instead do my Ph.D. in that department uh, with him, Barry Saltzman uh, was the name of my advisor, uh, studying Earth's climate, analyzing data, using math and physics to model the climate system. And that ultimately uh, sent sent me down a very different path from the one that I had envisioned. Uh, when I first got into science, and ultimately, it led me to the very center of this very contentious battle, as you uh, allude to.
0: You know, I think today, almost everyone recognized to some extent that we're in some sort of climate crisis. They have different responses to that. We'll, we'll, We'll get back to that. But at the time, how was the climate crisis considered?
1: Yeah, you know, when I first got into the field of climate science in the early 1990s, there was still some debate, some legitimate scientific debate about whether or not we could yet detect the impact of carbon pollution, fossil fuel burning and the elevation of carbon pollution on our climate. There were scientists, honest scientists who still weren't convinced by the evidence. But by the mid 1990s, by the time I was well into my PhD, there was now a a pretty broad consensus among the world scientists that the planet was warming up and, and that we were responsible for it. And there was a range of views about what the impacts might be, how bad it might get, but there was a scientific consensus and climate change critics Uh, were pretty much confined to a a fringe uh, movement by then, by the mid-1990s.
0: How was it? Because I think at this newspaper, we've been writing about it actually ever since uh, the Limit to Growth report came out 50 years ago, Next, next year. And we've been discussing a lot how to deal with it existentially, that it's something that can... Where you're down, but on the other hand, you feel that you can't really leave it because it is the biggest challenge that yeah. that 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 we have. How has it been existentially for you to to be engaged with climate change over the years?
1: Yeah, well, you know, uh, for me, uh, I got into it because I was interested in the science uh, and not so much the policy dimensions or the ethical dimensions or all of these other dimensions of the problem, but because I found myself at the very center of the contentious debate over climate change because of the hockey stick curve that we published in the late 1990s. And it became this iconic graph uh, in the climate change debate. And it became, uh, as you know, a subject of attack by climate change critics, by climate change deniers. That sort of thrust me into the center of the, the larger debate and not just over climate change, but what to do about it. And while it wasn't what I signed up for, as I said before, when I double majored in applied math and physics at UC Berkeley in the 1980s, I didn't think that I was signing up for, you know, a a life doing battle with vested interests, trying to discredit uh, my science, but that's the path that it led me down. And ultimately, I have come to embrace uh, that role, that opportunity to inform this conversation about what, as you say, is arguably the greatest challenge we face as a civilization. I feel privileged to be in a position to do that, even though it's not what I signed up for. And so at this point, I would say I'm all in. You know, my, I've devoted my life now, not just to doing the science, but communicating the science and its implications to the public and, and to policymakers, because um, this is a problem that's much greater than just the science. and 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 the um you know the scientific uh, aspects that got me into it. Um, this is about what sort of planet we want to leave behind for our children and grandchildren, and the fact that there's still time to make sure that we we don't essentially destroy the world for future generations.
0: And how is your your sensation now? Because I think here, you know we had cop fifteen or sixteen in Copenhagen in two thousand and nine. That was cup fifteen. And people were, it became kind of a climate breakthrough here in Denmark. We we, we never had a big climate denialism movement here. It was always, you know, there was this one uncle at every family party who said, well, it's always been going up and down, but it was never a contentious issue. It it really was. And it isn't today, you know, even our right-wing populist party, they subscribed to the 70% reduction goal in 2030. So it it was never contentious like this here there are conflicts of interest which i guess you have in all societies but i think here we've been hoping for many years that that we would be doing better and we can see that overall the curve is flattening but right now here i think after cup 26 there's a little depression there's a little well we're already uh, we're we're already into this decade that's supposed to be so so dramatically, uh, so dramatically important, and we cannot even pay to the southern countries. We cannot even agree on a loss and damage deal. What, what's your sense of the situation now? I know this is a big question.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's 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 funny because back in two thousand and nine, uh, people were re- referring to it as Hopenhagen <laughs> Yes. Because there was so much hope about what would be accomplished uh, in Copenhagen, and uh, as you know, there was this assault in the weeks leading up to the copenhagen summit Um, these uh, stolen emails that were released by climate change deniers uh, and they took you know various words and phrases including you know emails that i had written or that i had received and tried to take them out of context to make it sound like the science was fudged like uh you know climate scientists were making it all up like it was some big hoax and they got many media outlets to buy into it. I mean, ultimately, uh, all of the claims have been discredited, there have been numerous, you know, investigations, reports. um, And, you know, uh, in the end, you know, what they've shown is that there there were, were no improprieties by the scientists, the scientists weren't fudging the data. This was just a misrepresentation. But it was used to try to hijack the Copenhagen summit distract the politicians from the matter at hand, and and some people feel that um, it, it played a role in sort of ultimately sabotaging uh, the Copenhagen summit, and and so we didn't get nearly as much progress as we had hoped for. Now, you know that was COP twenty one. Now it's ten years later, COP twenty six, Glasgow. We're ten years farther down the road, where we've been continuing to burn fossil fuels and elevate uh, the levels of carbon pollution in the atmosphere, uh, we've started to flatten that emissions curve, but that's not enough. We've got to bring it down and we've got to bring it down quickly within the next 10 years, halfway down. We've got to cut those carbon emissions in half within 10 years if we are to stay on a path that avoids one and a half degree Celsius warming of the planet, beyond which we we see some of the worst impacts, we're likely to see some of the worst impacts. So, you know, Glasgow, we didn't get as much as we might have wanted. Uh, A lot of people would have liked to have seen um, a, uh, you know, a ban on new fossil fuel infrastructure, a commitment by the countries, um, the participating countries to no longer provide any subsidies to the fossil fuel industry, um, a phase out of coal within the next decade. And in the end, we didn't get the sorts of commitments along, you know, on those items that we might have liked. But there was some significant progress that was made nonetheless. Uh, There was, you know, uh, sort of pretty late in the negotiations an agreement between the world's two largest carbon emitters, the U.S. and China, to really now prioritize uh, measures to address the climate crisis. Uh, India finally came in with a commitment to bring their carbon emissions to zero, um, not you know within a couple of decades as we need to happen globally, uh, much later in the century, 2070. But that was you know the first time that they've committed to decarbonizing their own economy, and so. If you look at sort of what was agreed uh, upon in Glasgow and you total the impact of all of the agreements that are now on the table and you crank the numbers, the projected warming is now starting to come in under two degrees. Going into Paris in 2016, we were headed towards four degrees Celsius. Now, if you take all of the commitments and you total them up, it looks more like two degrees Celsius. That's not good enough, we've gotta keep it below one and a half Celsius, but it is progress. And there is a commitment for the countries to meet again uh, within the next year. We're not gonna have to wait four years or five years. There's gonna be another meeting within a year to try to uh, see if we can ratchet up those commitments by the US, by uh, China, by India and other countries. And so I think there's this feeling now that we are starting to make some progress but we have much more progress to make. And by the way, it's one thing to make a commitment at a meeting. It's it's something else to live up to that commitment. And so some of these countries, including the U.S., that have committed to decarbonizing uh, their electricity sector within the next decade are still building new oil and gas pipelines. And that is inconsistent with this commitment to decarbonize the economy. So they're there's a lot more work that needs to be done, and I can understand the frustrations of some people, especially youth climate protesters who expected so much, who 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 wanted, um, you know, wanted to see, you know, monumental progress made because this is an existential threat to the planet that they are living in and that they are inheriting. Um, and and it's understanding that they were disappointed that there wasn't more that was achieved, but at the same time. We did make some progress and we can build on that progress. So what I like to say is, let's not throw out, we have an expression in the in English, uh, throw out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, let's not overreact and say, well, that's it. We have to give up on the, uh, you know, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and on these Conference of the Party meetings because they haven't delivered what we want. No, the, this is the only global multilateral infrastructure that we have for you know global climate policy and we have to work within that framework to push for more to demand more we've got to keep you know the pressure on politicians but you know let's not give up on this process it is starting to provide uh, to produce dividends
0: I think we have a, a lot of people here, including myself at times, I change my mind all the time about this subject, who sometimes we would say, well, we actually believe that the financial sector can help can help us perform this green transition. It's a new role of finance in history yeah. to, to be a vehicle of some change you cannot achieve Politically, so at times, and Bill McKibben, who's quoted in your book, uh, he's very enthusiastic about this, that you must put pressure on BlackRock to have them change their investment from black, black energies to, to green energies. So we think, well, actually, if we move, every, if everyone moves together, the states and the financial sector at the same time, yeah. but then we're in this energy crisis and you see that the oil stock is, is going up again. And there was an interview with an investor in the Financial Times the other day who said it was such great business for him to invest in oil because nobody liked it. So they they didn't realize what kind of a big business opportunity it was. You you speak of this in the book as well, how how Goldman Sachs and some of the big financial institutions are part of this. How reliable partners are they in this transition? Because I think that we need them. We cannot do it without them. But can we trust them?
1: Yeah, you know, no, that's absolutely right. And I, and I think it's important to realize that we have this short-term challenge right now because we have an economy that was sort of halted for you know uh, almost two years. And so now as we start to emerge from the pandemic, and, and it's not over, <laughs> we're still fighting the <laughs> pandemic, but as the economy starts to come back, suddenly there's much more demand for products and services and, and energy. And so we've seen this spike in demand uh, for energy and we haven't yet built up our renewable energy infrastructure to the point where it can meet that demand. And so it it, it has required this short-term surge in demand for energy, including fossil fuel energy. We can't allow the fossil fuel companies to use this uh, to somehow make the argument that uh, we, you know, that we're stuck with fossil fuels, that we ultimately need to rely on fossil fuels. This is a short-term problem that will get past, um, this this sudden spike in demand for energy. And yeah, we have to work within the system that exists right now to meet that demand. But at the same time, we know that we have the technology to decarbonize the electricity sector by 50% within the next 10 years. As you allude to though, we can't do it on the backs of governments and individuals alone, we need big business to be working with us, and the finance sector in particular. We need to see, uh, you know, the the major banks and and finance firms, to end their support for new fossil fuel infrastructure. And we've seen some movement in that direction. We've seen commitments from BlackRock and, uh, you know, Bank of England and, and others, um, to 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 stop funding new fossil fuel infrastructure, but we need, you know, if you look at uh, what the International Energy Agency has said, they've said that if we are to keep warming below that dangerous one and a half degrees Celsius, there can be no new fossil fuel infrastructure now. So that means we require a much greater commitment than we already have from the finance sector to truly end the financing for new pipelines, for new coal-fired power plants. Um, Governments can't do it alone. Individuals can't do it alone. Big business can't do it alone. As you allude to, we need all of these sectors working together if we're going to solve this problem.
0: You know, especially a lot of young people here would say that capitalism caused the problem. That James Hansen came to Congress in the late '80s. We had the Rio Summit in the early 70, '90s, and we even had George Herbert Walker Bush, who's not a popular president here in Denmark. And like you said, eh, in in the course of the '90s, some sort of consensus uh, emerged. And yet, in the over these three decades, we've admitted a lot. So they would say, "Well, we cannot solve the problem within the capitalist system." And now we're very concerned here in Denmark about the rise in emissions from China. We can see actually the U.S. flattened the curve, Europe flattened the curve. But it's like we need consumer goods here in Europe and in the U.S. And they're produced in, in China. So it's like we're in a vicious circle. But you're very, very critical of that position that says in order to tackle climate change, we must confront capitalism radically. Why is that?
1: Well, you know, I, I do say in the book and i and i do believe that ultimately we do have to grapple with this fundamental question about you know whether a resource-driven global economy is compatible with a sustainable existence on this planet ultimately we need to confront that um that that challenge uh, and arguably we need to move away from a resource-driven global economy and the idea that infinite growth, especially economic growth, especially when it depends on on natural resources, can somehow be maintained uh, on a finite planet with finite resources and a very delicately balanced ecosystem um, whose stability we require for our existence. As I like to point out, there is no economy on a dead planet. (laughs) Um, And so that's, so let's recognize that, that we, we need to move away from an extraction resource-driven global economy but at the same time we need to attack the climate crisis now we've got to lower our carbon emissions by 50 percent within this decade and i don't think that we're going to be able to achieve a fundamental transformation in the global geo uh, eco-political environment on that time frame so we will have to work within the constraints of the system that exists to accomplish that. And so I guess where I come in on this is let's work to change the system for the better. And that may ultimately mean moving away from neoliberal economics. Uh, I fully accept that. But at the same time, we've got to work within the system that exists right now to achieve this massive decarbonization that we need on a very short time frame. And so that's where I do think that market mechanisms are important tools, carbon pricing, obviously subsidies for uh, renewable energy and other market measures to, to m- help move us in the direction that we need to go. Um, so I think it's possible to 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 sort of both recognize that we need to change the system ultimately, but at the same time, we need to work within the system that exists right now.
0: Yeah, and, and the systemic change must be internally that you must improve the systems to its maximum and then you can sort of transcend it or or because of the time, you know, it's not like all other problems in human history where you can say now we have 10 years of battle and then we, we must progress every single year and we must better ourselves every single year. One thing that's been very difficult for us here at this newspaper is how to talk about climate change. Because on the one hand, you want to recognize that a y- lot of young people, I have kids that are 16 and 19, that they're very scared about what's happening to, to the planet. And you know, here, when you see what's happened in Germany this summer, that people couldn't stay in their houses. Yeah. And I, funnily enough, people here also find it terrifying to see what happened to the software in New York, because they think of New York as part of our world. And this sense that we're all of a sudden exposed to forces that are beyond our control yeah. and our very advanced civilization seems so minute and fragile. Uh, so that, and, and you know, you have to recognize the fear that these young kids have and that I have myself actually as well. But on yeah. the other hand, you, we must not be what you refer to with a wonderful expression. We must not produce climate doom porn. Uh, so, so how
1: how how should we deal with this very very delicate balance? Yeah, thanks. It's it's a really important question, and you know, uh, and it is important to recognize that, uh, especially a lot of these young folks, they are scared. They're, they're very troubled by what we're seeing unfolding, and yeah, we witnessed those those mud mud rivers, you know, uh, moving through the German towns, uh, and we've seen similar things here in, in my home state of Pennsylvania, the Pacific Northwest, this uh, unprecedented heat dome that baked uh, the northwestern part of our country that, um, you know, and, and now it's winter and they're seeing atmospheric rivers. Uh, they're They're seeing huge amounts of flooding. And so we're alternating between these these extremes from one season to the next. And and these disasters are playing out in real time on our television screens for us all to see. So this has gotten real. I mean, this is a crisis. We have to acknowledge that. And and so I always try to emphasize both the urgency and the agency. And this has been an ongoing framing of mine. Uh, It's absolutely urgent. We have an emergency on our hands, but the agency is the fact that we can act on this crisis before it's too late and that's you know that's really important because urgency without agency leaves us nowhere we we need to believe that there's something we can do to 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 make things better and the science tells us there is that's what's so important here it would be one thing if the science said that we are undergoing a runaway greenhouse effect um, and there's nothing we can do to stop you know the uh, the warming of the planet and uh, we are now committed to the collapse of human civilization there's nothing we can do about it that's what i refer to as climate doom porn it's easy to get you know page views and clicks it, it demands our attention these you know, dystopian headlines um, that uh, speak of collapse and doom. It sort of gets our blood pumping. It gets our adrenaline going. Um, And so, uh, too often, we do see framing that sort of draws upon that. It draws people in. It gets lots of views. Um, It sells lots of magazines and newspapers and books, but it's premised on you know, a false assumption, uh, an assumption that we're already committed to unstoppable and disastrous planetary warming. The science tells us otherwise. As I like to say, the truth is bad enough. We don't need to make things (laughs) up. The scientific truth is bad enough. And we're seeing that truth. We're seeing it play out. This is bad. And it will get worse if we fail to act. And there is still time to make sure that, you know, we, we don't commit ourselves to a fundamentally degraded planet, but, but there's great urgency. We have to act now. So it's both of those things working together. It's so important. And where I criticize sort of the, the climate doom porn, sometimes it, it feels so gratuitous. It sells magazines, it gets page clicks, uh, page views and, and clicks, but it, it doesn't take us anywhere useful. And it it, it misleads us into believing that it's too late to act when that perhaps is the greatest threat to action, the notion that we lack agency, that it is too late. So it's really both the science, what the science has to say, and just what common sense has to say about the importance of pairing the urgency with the agency.
0: I think there's also a, a historical thing, at least for us here in this newspaper, because I think for many years we were writing like wake up calls. We wanted to people to understand, well, this is serious. This is serious. So, you know, we, we were doing were, that,
1: too, as scientists. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And, you know, we would be doing all these front pages with the planet and all the pictures of burning and, and flooding. And, and that was kind of an exclamation point because. We had this sensation that journalists often have that we are the only ones awake and that all the others are sleeping and now we're in a different state so so and and that makes it harder actually to communicate that we must recognize that there will be changes it's not about that we are going to win and they're going to go away once and for all the climate changes yeah but we can still make it a livable planet. So so it's more difficult than anything I ever experienced in, in journalism uh, before. What, what are your suggestions for, for how we should think about it and write about it?
1: Yeah, you're no, you're absolutely right. There's um we do need to treat this topic with some nuance um, because it's simultaneously true that it's really bad. What we're seeing is really bad. And we're not doomed. It's possible for both of those things to be true at the same time. And too often we sort of treat it, and, and I'm not blaming journalists, I think it's just human nature to try to simplify things, to try to ca- categorize things. So, you know, it's, it's either, you know, uh, Copen. I mean, uh, Glasgow with, with, has to be either a, 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 a total success or a total failure when in fact it was neither, it was okay. somewhere in between. And our predicament is somewhere in between. It's not the collapse of civilization. That's not what we're facing, but it's not good either. There's a lot of harm being done. There's a lot of damage being done. There's a lot of suffering already. you know. So by some measure, dangerous climate change has arrived. If, you, if all you have to do is watch those images that we saw this summer, of the devastation of entire towns being devastated, people losing their lives in floods and wildfires and heat waves. Um, you know, dangerous climate change is here. Let's recognize that. But let's also recognize that, you know, it it, it is still possible to keep the impacts within our collective adaptive capacity. If we prevent the warming, from continuing, if we stop things from getting worse, then we do still have it within ourselves to adapt to the changes that are baked in. There, there's there, you know, there, there are changes now that are baked in that we're going to need to deal with. The elevated risk of extreme weather events. We're stuck with that now. The challenge is to make sure we don't make it worse, because if it gets worse, then at some point we do start to leave that sort of um that that range of adaptive capacity, of something that we can adapt to using the resources and the resilience and the infrastructure that we have. Um, But there are all sorts of problems that uh, this feeds into, injustices, social inequality, climate justice, the fact that those who are witnessing the worst impacts of the problem had the least role in creating it, they weren't the major carbon emitters, and they have the least wealth and resources and infrastructure to, um, you know, to protect themselves from the consequences that we're already seeing. So this goes beyond, you know, science and economics and policy. It becomes about ethics, um, and and that's where I think the youth climate movement has been so important, because it's reframed this issue where it truly belongs. Um, you know, our ethical ethical obligation not to destroy the world uh, for our our children and for other people around the world who had very little role in creating this problem that we in the industrial world created with our profligate uh, mining of resources and production of carbon pollution.
0: And and I think the young people, they're also obligating us, you know, that that they still actually, Greta Thunberg, she's still appealing to the grownups. You know, she's still actually, she started out in front of the Swedish parliament with this sign saying, I, I'm striking for, for climate. And yeah. they still believe in the system and actually everything they do, uh, the, the, the large climate movement, you, you have fringes that are radicalized, but they, they show us that they still trust that we will be able to manage it. But there's another th- aspect about this uh, climate movement that you're quite critical of. And I think that will be helpful to for this newspaper as well to think about. It's this moralizing about the individual choices that and, and this is also, I think, difficult because I find it very important to signal to my surroundings and, and my kids that I make choices that are responsible to the situation that they're in and the futures. And so, you know, I, I, it's very important for me that they see that I, that I sacrifice something and it gives me a lot of pleasure. You know, it's not like, it's not big suffering for for me. Yeah. yeah. But on the other hand, you know, there are parts of my family. We're a family from the countryside that, that definitely don't respond very, very optimistically to, to, to these signals. So how do you think we should go about these individual choices and how we, Present them to each other, whether we eat meat or drive an electric car, or whether we take the flight on vacation.
1: Yeah, thanks. It's it's such an important conversation, and again, it's one of those things where it's so easy for us to sort of um, simplify it as an either or. It's either individual action or it's systemic change, um, and 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 this idea that it's all or nothing, um, and you know, and and sort of uh, it's easy to caricature. Um, uh, the sort of the the issue of um, individual lifestyle choices. Um, obviously, nobody's saying that you have to live off the grid in a shack and you know and farm your own food and use no electricity. I mean, you know that we have to you know once again live within the system that exists, even as we try to change that system for the better. And so, I think you you put your finger on you know what I think is the right approach here. We should try to signal to others through our actions, um, you know, the importance of, of living sustainably and making choices, I, you know, and, and, and again, using the positive example, being the change that you wish to see in the world and making changes in your lifestyle that, hey, they save you money, they make you healthier, they make you feel better and they reduce your environmental footprint and your carbon footprint and they send a signal to other people a positive signal to other people that's all important to do what we can't allow though is first of all for polluters to pretend that it falls entirely upon us that somehow it's all a matter of individual action and there's a reason that british petroleum bp gave us one of the first individual carbon footprint calculators back in the early 2000s, because they wanted us so focused on our own individual carbon footprint that we failed to take note of theirs, right? Uh, 70% of carbon pollution comes from just 100 companies. And so if we are to tackle this problem, we need systemic change. We need subsidies for renewable energy. We need carbon pricing. We need to stop new fossil fuel infrastructure. There are all these things that we need to happen that neither you nor i can make happen on our own we need our policymakers our politicians to to act on our behalf rather than to act as rubber stamps for polluters which they too often uh, too often do uh, once again though you know we have to recognize that that does come down to individual action we have to vote we have to use our voice we have to demand action um, and as a group of individuals we You know, we become part of collective action and that collective action puts pressure on politicians. You know, those 40,000 children marching through the streets of Glasgow that put pressure on those politicians in those meeting rooms. And so it's not either or. And one last thing here. We do have to be careful. Many of us will do these things, make changes in our lifestyle. Like, you know, you or I feel passionately about this. I also have a 16 year old daughter, um, you know, to me it's about the, the future of the, you know, the future planet that she inherits and that future generations inherit. This matters to me, this is important to me. Um, and I'm willing to even pay extra to get my energy entirely from renewable energy. And I'm willing to pay extra to get a, you know, a a hybrid. um, uh, uh, We have a plug-in hybrid uh, vehicle. Um, Our electricity comes uh, from a a plan that only uses wind energy. So when we charge up our car, we're charging our car on wind. When we use electricity in the house, we're using wind. Uh, I don't eat meat. Um, My my daughter has chosen, uh, you know, not to eat meat. We've made these changes uh, in our you know, in our own personal lifestyles, because these things are important to us. But we need the incentives to be such that everybody will make climate friendly choices, whether or not they're actively thinking about it, whether or not they're actively thinking, I've got to do something today that helps out the planet. The incentive structure, the economic structure is such that they are encouraged that you don't have to pay extra to get your electricity from renewable energy. Why should you have to pay extra for that, for something that's better for the planet? That comes down to incentives, that comes down to policy. So it's all this stuff working together. It's so easy for us to try to simplify it and make it seem like it's one thing or the other, but it, all this stuff is interconnected and, and, and that makes it more complicated, but it also means that you know our, our messaging does have to be somewhat more nuanced here.
0: I have one last question that is very important for us here in Denmark, I think. You know, when Joe Biden was elected and he was under the influence of uh, the Sunrise Movement and, and the Bernie Sanders campaign and Elizabeth, I know you have criticisms of the Bernie Sanders campaign as well, But but we had the sensation that this could be a green breakthrough for America. And, you know, in Europe, we're still the Europe of nation states. We don't have a central bank the same way that you do. We yeah. cannot make huge public investments in this continent because basically Danes don't want to pay for Italian railroads. I mean, and, and people in Portugal, they don't, they don't want to pay for energy in Finland. So, so we don't have the volume that that you have and the capacity to make green investment. So, I think we were very, very optimistic when Joe Biden came came into office, and I love the scope of, of of his plan. And yeah. we were hoping that. COVID could actually, you know, we always hope for the best, you know, that COVID could actually prove to be an occasion to make the big reforms yeah. In, in, yeah. in America. The great now, reset. Yeah. yeah. Now, you know, less than one year in, I, I'm not so sure. H- how do you see the, po- the politics of, of the green transition in America?
1: Yeah. And so, no, I I do. I, I think that, uh, you know, Sunset Movement and Bernie Sanders, uh, they played a really important role here. Um, and the grassroots pressure that they, you know, put on uh, Joe Biden ended up uh, forcing him to take a more proactive stance on climate than I think he otherwise would have, and so that was all really important. Um, and and we did see Biden come in with a bold climate agenda. What he's run into uh, are the same obstacles we always run into: the fossil fuel industry, and the right-wing uh, plutocrats, and you know institutions that basically advocate for them. Um, have used the immense power and uh, influence that they have at their disposal to try to block these things. Courts have been loaded with with conservatives after four years of the Trump administration. um, You know, our government was run by industry. It was run by fossil fuel interests and they got all their people in there and they got the judges they want. And so we now have judges, we have a court system that's blocking the executive branch, the Biden administration, as they try to, uh, for example, prevent new fossil fuel infrastructure, um, as they try to uh, to stop the construction of new uh, pipelines, they're being blocked by the conservative courts. And we have a Congress that while technically it's in the hands of Democrats, there are one or two Democrats who have basically been acting as advocates For the fossil fuel industry, Uh, Joe Manchin, in particular, senator from West Virginia, who is blocking the Build Back Better Plan, which is this plan that would essentially codify Joe Biden's climate agenda. It would codify it as legislation, which is what we need to happen if the Biden administration is to make good on their commitments. And it's being blocked by, you know, one or two Democrats who are essentially acting as advocates for the fossil fuel industry um, and other special interests. And so we're still running into the same old political obstacles. And the solution, once again, it comes down to individuals. Individuals in this country, not everybody votes. We need people to vote in much larger proportions, and we need them to vote on issues like climate. And we need them to turn out in elections because we get the politicians that we vote for. And unfortunately, we haven't seen a strong enough progressive showing of progressives in recent elections to get the sorts of majorities in Congress that we would need to implement the Biden climate agendas. So it comes back to us as individuals using our votes but using our voice influencing our politics doing everything we possibly can to affect change and once again you know um, youth climate uh, advocates and you know movements like the sunrise movement um, are putting pressure on politicians we need to keep that up because we're not there yet and they're seeing a lot of pressure from the fossil fuel industry that means we've got to put even more pressure on them to overcome that.
0: Well, thank you, Michael E. Man, I can tell you that we're rooting for you here in Denmark because I think the thing is that the US cannot do it alone. Europe cannot do it alone. China and India cannot do it alone. And we really need America to go forward here. And so, so we're just delighted that there are good forces and voices like you, inspiring our movement, inspiring your movement. Thank you so much for everything you do. It, it's really important to us.
1: Well, well, thank you. Thanks to you for all you do. It's so important to uh, to get this message out, and I really appreciate the the communication efforts that you've undertaken here. So, thank you. It was my pleasure.
0: Det var så min samtale med den nye vennerhuset Michael E. Mann. I næste uge, der har jeg talt med en, som jeg efter hånden godt kan tillade mig at kalde for en gammel vennerhuset. Det er nemlig professor i politisk teori ved Cambridge University. David Runciman, som også er vært på den efterhånden meget lyttede podcast Talking Politics. Det er nogle år siden, jeg interviewede ham første gang, og vi havde besøg af David her i Danmark, da han udgav bogen How Democracy Ends, som vi oversat til dansk. Nu har jeg taget fat i David igen, og det er for at høre, hvordan han ser verdenssituationen lige nu, og for at få ham til at forklare, hvorfor han, når han ser på, hvordan verden enten er ved at blive helt fantastisk, eller ved at bryde helt sammen. At gå tilbage til Thomas Hobbes og hans bog Leviathan. Jeg håber, vi høres ved.